0: is offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.
1: This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful Northern Colorado. Join us as Certified Financial Planner Jim Saulnier, as well as Colorado State University Finance Instructor and Certified Financial Planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401Ks, annuities, Social Security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show whether you are listening live in colorado or streaming from their website or itunes podcast jim and chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement just visit their website at jimhelps.com that's jim h-e-l-p-s dot and click the meet the team button on the homepage. now here's jim and chris with today's show
2: Hello, and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Pretty standard Q&A show this week as we head into the uh, likely hot month of July. This uh, show will release on July 1st. So we technically are recording it the last day of June, just for full disclosure, but Uh, Jim's joining me remotely and, uh, has a whole slew of questions and he's advised me we have at least two social security questions to deal with. So I know we're going to be doing that after that, it'll just be up to Jim's whims on which direction we go with the pile of questions that he has in front of him. So I'll let him kind of fill in the blanks there of where he's going to take this show as far as topics go. But, uh, I have a somewhat tight timetable for the show today, Uh, so I'll not banter too much, but uh, welcome, Jim.
3: Thank you, Chris, and uh, happy New Year to everybody. Not New Year. Uh,
2: Somewhere. Isn't July like it is (laughs) New Year in some Asian country or something?
3: (laughs) I have no idea. I meant to say happy Happy July 4th. I have no idea why happy New Year. Well, it's happy. I'm used to saying happy New Year, not happy July 4th. Um, Happy July 4th, people. Uh, by the time you listen to this, or most of you, it'll be July. We are recording on June 30th, so it's technically still National Annuity Awareness Month. So we have a Q&A dedicated to annuities again. And that'll be it, folks. I'm all annuity out, as I'm sure Chris is and you guys are as well. But we got a lot of questions in on them. So I was I was pleased by that. It shows people are wanting to learn. So I'll try addressing them going forward. We might cut Chris's social security to one social security and then one annuity question until we get the rest of these annuity questions all wrapped up. And then we'll go back to two social security questions. But anyways, that's where I see this going. And then, of course, our EDU show will not have anything to do with um, annuities. So that is playing next week, right? The week after this one. So, yeah, because today's Saturday. Well... We're recording Friday, but it plays on Saturday. So next Tuesday's show will not be annuities because we're officially out of June. All righty. I will forego with banter as well so we can be very uh, short with our time. Well, we're short on time, but we want to be very efficient with our use of time. So I probably shouldn't be asking this question Uh because it's... It's very nuanced. It's about self-employed people. We haven't talked about that for a long time with Social Security. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't go too deep down a rabbit hole like you normally do and turn a simple five-minute question into a 45-minute answer. Okay. And uh, just keep it kind of superficial. How's that?
2: Okay. I'll do my best. I'll try to strike right. an appropriate balance.
3: All right. Uh, this guy said his state but gave us no hint. Oh, wait a minute, it says, no point in trying to stump Chris about my state, since you have so many questions that come from the great state of Texas already. Hmm. All right, spoken it's like te- a
0: true Texas.
2: Texas text- has a lot of fun facts about it. It's such it, a big were, state, yeah, a lot of stuff going state. on down there. So I, don't, I can't imagine that I know all the fun facts, all the, all the yeah. trivia about Texas, but uh, probably best that we dive right into the question today anyway.
3: Well, a little letdown from that Texan. He took the easy road out. Okay, he says, my question is around the earnings limit for self-employed people. I am current, and we're talking social security folks and the earnings test, so to speak. Chris will explain what all that means. I'm currently retired and 66 years old. I am waiting till 70 to collect my social security. My wife is five years younger and still working as a self-employed worker. She will be 62 this year. And after much analysis and discussion with our financial advisor, we have decided to turn on her Social Security benefits in early 2024. So January, February of next year, I would assume, Chris. Mm -hmm. Her net self-employment income is very close to the earnings limit and may even go a bit over the limit depending on what year we look at. I am familiar with the rules about holding back $1 for every two someone earns over the limit. And we're okay with that since I know they will give her the credits back once she reaches her full retirement age. And you're not going to get deep into that aspect, but folks, yes, she will get back what they kept in earnings, but it's not a lump sum check. It's designed to be paid back to her over her life expectancy. So do keep that in mind, folks. Okay, he continues. However, I recently heard a financial advisor mention that the earnings limits for self-employed people also includes a, quote, unquote, significant work. Clause. If I understand this clause correctly, a self employed person cannot work more than 45 hours per month and receive Social Security benefits unless they are at their full retirement age or beyond. And remember, folks, she's going to start claiming at 62. She'll claim in the year she turns 63, which is next year, but by time she claims, she'll still be 62. She won't be at her full retirement age, so he's right on that. I reached out to my current financial advisor, who in turn reached out to her social security expert. She sent me links to the clause in the palm, which I read, but again, not much detail seems to be around it. My financial advisor said that in 23 years of doing this, she has never ran into this. There is no indication of how they collect this information to determine how many hours per month a self-employed person works to determine their eligibility. And if I understand it correctly, the earnings test for a self-employed person is not determined until the following year when the IRS posts the earnings for the previous year. In other words, if my wife starts collecting in 2024, Social Security won't know how much to withhold until early 2025. If you have any additional clarification on this aspect of the self-employed earnings test, and specifically the 45 hours per month limit, I would appreciate it. And he gives his name, but we're going to call him George from Texas. Really unique situation, narrow, mm-hmm. focused folks, yeah. but interesting to know how it works. Yeah.
2: So uh, first of all, let me say I'm going to start at the end because he made a comment that I need to clean up. He said that uh, it won't be till 2025 that they are able to apply 2024 earnings and maybe do a reduction. And that's not quite how it works. When you claim prior to full retirement age, and they're going to ask you if you have expected earnings, and they will trust you at first. They will use what you tell them about, you know, I think I'm going to make about fill in the blank per month or whatever it is. They'll then, you know, do the reduction based on that information. Then they will adjust if you are off once they actually get the official records. So they ultimately will the adjustment won't be until after they get the records from uh, the IRS that are submitted. Um, but they will ask you up front, and it's a good idea, I think, to just be up front with them and tell them so that you get the earnings test applied immediately because they're going to scru- they're going to claw it back from you one way or another, and that's a little more violent because they they claw it back really quickly. Uh, rather than you kind of paying it in by having a slight reduction every single month moving forward. So I just wanted to clear that up. That has nothing to do with being self employed or not. That's just how it works with everybody. Uh, they ask you how much you think you're going to make and base it initially on that and then adjust it every year as they get the official records from your employer or from your tax return if you're self employed. So back to the core of his question, there's the earnings test, which again, I don't want to explain every nuance to this, but effectively, if you're before your full retirement age and you earn above a certain amount, they will withhold $1 for every $2 over that amount that you uh, earn. And, uh, it's, um, um, you know, in all the years leading up to your full retirement age, there's a certain limit. And then in the year you turn your full retirement age, the limit is much higher and the offset is only $1 for every $3, I believe. Although I think I just might've talked myself into something, but either way, um, that's the basics. And that's what he's worried about is this, this earnings test for work. But the reason why that exists is they, they, You know, assume you're retiring and you're you're earning a lot lower, you're just earning a little bit and still claiming and then they just maybe slightly reduce your Social Security benefits because of this earnings test for self-employed individuals because they know you have a lot of control over the recognition of your income they know you would play games with this and essentially keep working, not truly retire, and present to the Social Security Administration that you were earning less than the earnings test and collect your Social Security unreduced. Uh, I mean, it would be reduced for you claiming early, but it wouldn't be further affected by an earnings test when you, in fact, kept working, working your job, you know, your your own business, right? Self-employed. So they apply this additional rule. So if you... Uh, Are claiming that you are retired and have lower income income that would allow you to collect a benefit while still earning because there's a certain amount of earnings that you could earn that would um, ultimately eliminate your benefit. And if your earnings are substantial, even if you wanted to, you can't claim a benefit prior to full retirement age because the earnings test would completely eliminate your uh, Social Security benefit. Uh, I would think a lot of self-employed people would be making enough to fall into that category. So they don't want you to play games with the numbers. So they will first take what you're telling them as the earnings that you will have, but then they will ask you essentially to prove through documentation that you are in fact retired and not substantially providing substantial services to your own business. Remember you're self-employed to your, you know, to your own business. And they define that substantial services with this 45 hour figure, but it's more nuanced than that. Um, if you work more than 45 hours, They're not going to consider those lower earnings that you're claiming. They're going to consider prior earnings that you have reported to them on your tax returns. And they're going to use that for the earnings test, essentially arguing you're not truly retired. We don't care what you're paying yourself now because you can play games with the numbers. We're going to use prior earnings that you've reported as the owner of this business but it gets worse for people that are highly skilled. If your service to the business is considered highly skilled and I don't, there's not a, a written detailed description of what determines highly skilled. I think it's up to the judgment of the social security people. If it's, if you're highly skilled, the limit is only 15 hours. Um, if you earn more than fi- or you work more than 15 hours in a highly skilled position, they're going to consider you not retired. And so you got to be wary of that too. He didn't say what kind of work his wife was doing, but if it is hot considered by the Social Security Administration highly skilled, she's going to have a problem just keeping under that 15-hour limit and arguing that she's truly retired. Now, I don't know the nature of the business, so maybe it's totally fine, but I wanted to point that out. But they're going to effectively when you're self-employed, want you to prove through Um, The fact, you know, showing that someone has taken over for you, the uh, the activities you used to perform. You've got other maybe family members um, assuming those duties that or you've got a manager in place that takes care of stuff so that you're truly a a partially retired uh, owner of the business and just putting in a little tiny bit of work. That's what they're going to look for. And um, it's going to be kind of up to their judgment. So it can be kind of hard at times for self-employed individuals to fall, you know, outside of the punishment of the earnings test because of these issues. Doesn't come up a lot and we actually don't deal with a lot of self-employed individuals at our firm, so I have only had a couple of instances of this over the years um that and and I think in both cases they essentially decided to throw up their arms and not claim social security until after they reached their full retirement age. um They just didn't have a great experience interacting with the Social Security Administration, if I remember correctly. This was years ago. Um, I'm sure there's advisors out there who maybe deal with self-employed individuals as a niche constantly, and maybe have run into this and have. I'd love for them to write into me and give me some more clarity on their real experiences of of what they've run into here. But that's essentially the scope. It's just. Remember, it's the Social Security trying to determine if you're trying to play games with the numbers and keep yourself with recognized income low enough to get a Social Security benefit when you're actually still an active participant in your own business and you're just kind of playing games. That's what they're looking for. So if you can provide documentation that that convinces them that you're not doing that, I think you're probably going to be fine. But be aware if it's if you're if it's a highly skilled activity that you're doing for the business, you've only got a fifteen hour limit for them to uh consider not a forty five hour per month limit, so just wanted to you know add that which he didn't bring up he only mentioned the forty five hours so um I think that without i that probably felt kind of deep, but it it there's even a lot of other nuances and deeper than that I could have gone, but I think I'll stop there and that probably satisfies uh for for his case uh ultimately it's up to social security to determine so you'll have to present your material and then see what they say and they'll ask you for the for the information so obviously they don't have anybody who visits your business to check up on how many hours you're working they're going to ask for other documentation that convinces them that you've truly reduced your work and you're not really contributing much to the business anymore
3: yeah i've always found that to be interesting how they're going to do all that and It's, we haven't talked about, I don't know if we ever talked about it in the past. I'm sure we have, but it's been a very, very long time. Yeah. So I think we'll turn this into a blog post as well for uh, helpwithmysocialsecurity.com because it's that rare to to really get into it. Okay. Uh, Continuing on with the second social security question. Uh, Okay. He gave a hint, but not the answer, but I think I know the answer. (laughs) All right. It says, greetings, Jim and Chris. I live in the beautiful evergreen state, living in the backdrop of the Olympic rain shadow on the Olympic Peninsula. He can't get any more specific than that. Mm-hmm. I think I know what the state is. Yeah, I, I do too. I say Washington. What that do you is, say?
2: That is, in fact, Washington state. has to be.
3: Okay, that's what I thought. Alrighty. I've been up there. It was beautiful. Twice I've been to Seattle in the summer. It's beautiful. But everybody tells me from September on, not so much. But uh, I will say I I enjoyed it in, in the summer when I was there. Okay. He said, I am 62 years old and retired after 38 years as a K through 12 teacher. My husband is 59 and is currently teaching. This year, And he will complete his 37th year. When we claim our social security... Hold on, Chris. I usually blow this up. Mm -hmm. I can't read it. (laughs) I didn't blow it up. That's why I'm (laughs) pausing. There we go. Much better. Ah, now I can see. All right. Sorry, folks. I was struggling here to read it. For some reason, his font is wicked small. All right. I'm 62 Mm -hmm. years old. Don't laugh at me. You need glasses too. I know. I've seen you with glasses. I wear glasses. All right. (laughs) I'm 62 years old and retired after 38 years as a through K-12 teacher. My husband is 59 years old and is currently teaching. But this year he will complete his 37th year. When we claim our Social Security, we will have almost identical PMIs, primary insurance. That's, oh, PMI.
2: Should be, should be PIA.
3: Yeah, I was going to say PIA, yeah. There is no such thing as a PMI. That has to be a, a typo, but... Because she says we'll have almost identical PMIs. I think she meant uh, primary insurance amount, PIA. And we're both in good health. Our plan has been for both of us to claim Social Security at 70. Our thinking is by both of us delaying Social Security till 70, we will increase our longevity insurance. And let me pause there. She's right. From that standpoint, folks, that's why we continue to do Social Security questions when I wanted to dedicate everything to annuities in June. I said Social Security is a form of annuity, and annuities are designed to provide longevity protection. And she nailed it right there. She said if both her and her husband delay until 70, they will have bigger or greater longevity insurance if both of them live well into their 90s they will collect the maximum amount they're eligible for for a very long time so it's just trying to point out that she is correct on that after running the numbers on open social security i'm guessing that's a website have you ever heard of it open social security it's okay
2: quite popular
3: all right after running the numbers on open social security It recommended I claim at 70, and my husband claims at 62. I also ran the numbers on open Social Security for both of us claiming at 70. We would receive $38,500 less over time. What are we missing here? We still think we'll wait until we're both 70, but we'd love to hear your thinking about married couples claiming Social Security who have similar-sized benefits. Thank you. Gives her a real name, but we will call her Georgette. Yep.
2: So we get questions about the, the results that people have run on OpenSocialSecurity.com fairly regularly. It's a free website. Uh, the person's put a bunch of effort into creating a calculator to help you determine the optimal approach to your Social Security But I have real problems with their process, and let me describe why that is. I believe that the approach that they're using to calculate what is the best approach for you is statistically flawed, significantly. And let me share why. In their methodology, they run scenarios with you claiming at a bunch of different ages and calculate effectively what we call a present value of all of the future benefits But let me read to you, and I pulled this. As soon as I heard she she mentioned Open Social Security, I knew where this was going, and I pulled up their website to the page that explains how they calculate this magical present value figure. And let me walk you through it, and you'll see what I mean. Step one, first assume they file as early as possible at 62. And I'm reading right off their website. This is how they do it. Step two, calculate the amount of their monthly retirement benefit under such assumption. So that's, that's pretty easy, Pull you know, from their earnings record, figure out what their benefit would be at 62. Step three, here's the problem. For each year up to age 115, the calculator multiplies the annual retirement benefit by the user's probability of being alive in such year to arrive at a probability-weighted annual benefit. Let that sink in for a minute. They're looking at your benefits for each year up until the age you turn 115, but they're not looking at the actual benefit you would earn that year if you were alive. They're adjusting it, putting a probability on it for the chance of you being alive that year, which can come from true tables. That's a figure that we can figure out. What is the chance of you being alive? Actuarially based on statistics in any given year at a certain age. The problem with that is that approach to determining total value of benefits delivered to someone is really not appropriate for looking at one individual. It it would be appropriate if you're trying to determine the total amount of benefits available to a group of individuals. When, in fact, you would have out of 100 people, only 38 of them alive, so 38 people received a benefit, so 38% of the potential benefit that year would be collected When one of you is being analyzed, a single person with a single life, each year, you're either alive or dead. At no point will you receive 38% of your benefit. You're either going to get all of it or you're going to get none of it. So this leads to an inappropriate lump sum value of your future benefits for an individual from an individual standpoint. This is completely inappropriate. Statistically, to apply this approach to an individual decision maker receiving an individual benefit. So the fact that they're encouraging you to claim at 62 for one of you and the other at 70 is based on, I believe, a completely flawed approach. So that's my diatribe about OpenSocialSecurity.com's approach to this. Totally valid approach if you're working on the benefits to a group totally inappropriate for calculating the benefits to an individual. So to her question, we'd like, you know, she basically said, what do you think about us claiming at 70? Now, we like as a default approach, unless we see reasons in someone's plan to do it differently, we like having the higher wage earnier consider most sincerely or most seriously waiting until 70 why? Because that individual's benefit will continue as long as either are alive. The lower benefit recipient of the spouse uh, of the of the couple, their benefit will drop off when the first of you passes away. So that benefit does not ultimately provide the longevity benefits to a survivor, which it's likely that one of you will outlive the other. It's not very common for both to simultaneously pass away. So we think it's extra important for the higher wage earner to create the most longevity protection possible by waiting to 70. The other spouse, now it kind of depends. If the couple really wants the most robust longevity protection for when they're both alive, having both wait to 70 is the way to do it. It'll give you the largest inflation-adjusted lifetime uh, or, or, or annual benefits paid to you. I don't know if it'll provide the longest lifetime benefits, because I don't know how long you're going to live, right? If, if, you know, you live long enough, then the more you wait, the better it's definitely going to be. But if you have a shorter lifespan, uh, uh, you know, you the, the math changes. But you have to make a decision before you know when you're going to die. That's the challenge. If you aren't so worried about you know the couple and you're just kind of taking a middle of the road approach. We often have this, the lower wage recipient or the lower benefit recipient claim at their full retirement age simply because the the evidence shows us that the value of the of that other benefit that's going to drop away at the first passing is uh, the lifetime benefit of that is reduced um, if so the delay to 70 isn't as impactful overall as the higher benefit recipient claiming at 70. So, you know, I think it all depends on your circumstances. If you have plenty of resources so that you can both wait to 70 and you like the idea of lots of the most you can get lifetime inflation adjusted income for the two of you while you're both alive waiting to 70 for both of you, I think could make perfect sense but I don't know the rest of your whole story. So I'm I'm only going by what you were kind of leaning towards doing anyway. And the reason for that you liked, you expressed, you liked the longevity protection that would provide. I think that's totally justifiable. And I really don't like the suggestion that you're getting from that website. Uh, I I don't think it's addressing what you're valuing. And I think their approach is uh, just flat out defective. So um, I'm sure others disagree. I know it's a very popular website. But I think people haven't read how they actually calculate it and haven't really thought about what they're proposing in step three of this process that they use to arrive at the valuation of these different approaches. So I think that, that covers my everything. That's your cue, Okay,
3: that was my cue. Right, I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure. Um, have you ever chatted with them or sent them an email? Or? You know,
2: at times I've, I've meant too but i'm kind of a busy guy and i just i honestly i've never gotten around to it i'd be i'd be more than happy to have an open conversation and see what their argument is for doing it the way they're doing it it it's totally justifiable uh for a group uh, of individuals looking at a bunch of people claiming benefits and looking at the benefits to the group totally vi totally viable what they're doing totally appropriate applied to an individual Mm, no this is, they're they're valuing a scenario that can't possibly happen. At no point can you get part of your benefit because of a certain age. You're either getting it if you're alive or you're not. It's 100% on or off. There's no in between.
3: Okay, fair enough. I'm just wondering someday you might, they might reach out to you. and That'd be uh, fine. Yeah, okay.
2: I'm, I'm we could bring them on the it.
3: podcast for a discussion. Sure, yeah. Okay. All righty, well, I thought that was a good answer. Thank you. Um, Now we're going to get into some annuity questions. Uh, Before we jump into annuity questions, I've got a few uh, house cleaning things to to do. Uh, Where is the first one? Uh, Someone was pointing out an error you recently made on a show, so I wanted to uh, get to that. Uh, But I love his hint. He lives in the southernmost state. Do, 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 do. Well,
2: it's got to be Hawaii or uh, or Florida, doesn't it?
3: I'm not saying he tip, lives in the southern. The tip most of Florida state.
2: is very south, right? Key West. It's what ninety miles to Cuba, or whatever. Cuba. Yeah. But Hawaii, you know, it's hard to put that in relation to the others because it's kind of this outlier way, 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 way out. And I always, I never get a sense for really how far north or south it is. I just know it's really west. <laughs> so might be Hawaii. Do I have to pick between the two?
3: You have to pick one answer, yes. Okay, Hawaii. You are correct. Oh, thank goodness. I thought that was going to get you because most people would say Florida because of Key West. So anyways, I did love his hint. I thought for mm-hmm. sure that yeah, was going to get good one. you. Yeah, I thought so. All right. On the June 16th podcast, Chris made an error when he failed to correct you. You gave him a test clearly. Mm. I I know Mm. this (laughs) because I always give Chris tests. His job is to pick up when I'm trying to trick him by saying something wrong. And then he's supposed to pick it up. And you failed yet again to do that. You gave him a test by saying that the five-year rule – this goes back to just a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the five-year rule to Roth IRAs. And we were talking about a gentleman who has another very, very, very successful podcast, made a, a mistake. And, again, we, we like this gentleman. We weren't picking on him or anything. It's just that I kept getting emails uh, saying, hey, Jim, you, you're saying something different than he's saying who's right. So that's why I wanted to clear the air. But I was testing Chris. And he missed something that this other gentleman picked up on. Hmm. The five year, You said the five-year rule for opening a Roth IRA only requires the account be opened but not funded. Chris failed to hmm. pick up on that test from the IRS's website, and he sent me a link. Yeah. And on the IRS's website, it says the clock begins from when it's opened and first funded. Yeah,
2: I remember you saying that, and I I took that to mean from you what you were meaning to say, you know, remain funded, like you had to leave money in there, but they won't let you open it and not put money in.
3: In defense of me, that's what I said. You're not going to be able to open one and not put money in, but I did imply, and he is correct, and I was always under the impression, because I could have sworn the guru himself, the IRA sensei, once said, you can open it, you don't even have to put money in. But I think Ed was Ed Slot, so I'm talking about, was also referencing that once it's opened and funded, you don't have to put any more money in. And it is correct. You can open it, fund it, and immediately close it and mm-hmm. take the money out. Right. And it counts five years later, which, as we also pointed out, could be as little as three years in a couple of days, the way the, the five-year clock is actually counted. But this gentleman is right. I had been wrong. And, and all jokes aside, it's not Chris's job to pick up on me if I make a mistake. I was always under the impression you didn't even have to fund it. But I would always say, but no one's going to allow you to open up a Roth without first putting money in it. But on the IRS's website and publication 590A, that's where uh, he sent me the link to him where I would have went anyways, they clearly do indicate the Roth has to be funded. And then the five-year clock begins. But you are allowed, folks, to close it and you don't have to put money in on a regular basis. You can open it in 2023 and close it in 2023. And five years later, it will be considered that you have a Roth that's five years old, even though you don't even have a Roth anymore. What they're really measuring is that you participated in the Roth program, if you will, for lack of a better word, For at least five years. And participation means you had one at one point in your life five or more years ago. But this gentleman is correct. I did say opened and you don't even have to fund it. You do have to fund it. You don't have to put any additional monies in it. So I did want to uh, give him a shout out of picking up where my mistake was. I like to blame Chris. It's a cute thing I do. Or or an annoying thing I do, whichever way you want to look at it. And according to the next email, it probably falls into the annoying category. So we have another gentleman who wrote us. And I do want to address his email um, because there might be other newer listeners around here as well to understand what Chris and I are trying to do on this show. And I do this show to have fun. I really look forward to recording. I don't consider it work. I consider everything that I was doing prior to 2 o'clock today, Friday, June 30th, my mom's birthday, by the way, was work. And then from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock as I'm recording with Chris, I don't consider this work. And then when I go back to my computer and do some more things before uh, 5 o'clock, or I'll probably work to 5.30 or so today, I consider that work. I consider what I do here fun. And if I'm going to do it as fun, I'll be damned, I'm going to have fun on the show. So he begins, hey guys, the world may be your oyster when doing your show, but can you please not waste our time with these silly games about the states and their names and their origins? And have all of Jim's opinions about what he likes and doesn't like about annuities and IRAs. Which makes me scratch my head, Chris. The whole point of the show is to give you our knowledge and opinion on these, especially IRAs. It's right in the title of our damn show, Retirement and IRA Show. But then he goes on to say, and the government. I don't know what he means by the government. I don't think we give our opinion of the government. I freely say politicians are idiots. Oh, but Maybe I that's think, it. <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe he's a politician. Um, but I think he might be referencing how we sometimes try to say what the government was intending, especially on this five-year rule. That's why I did both of these emails together. That five-year rule, we did share why the government has the rules, why they have especially the second five-year rule on Roth conversions that confuses a lot of people. And we try to explain, here's what the government was thinking. Here's what they were doing. Listener, please, don't don't hate us for going down this road. I'm not going to change. I'm telling you that right now. So if you don't like it, don't listen. But I do this show to have fun. I kind of like these little hints of the states. It breaks up just listening to us opine on on finance. He says, if we got rid of all that crap, if I didn't, I guess, talk about annuities, IRAs, and the government, and give hints to states, we could get everything done in 30 minutes. Well, if you want to listen for 30 minutes, listen for 30, and then hit pause, and come back the next day, listen to 30 more, and hit pause, and you might have to come back one more day and listen to another 30. But you just, anyways, I wanted to just kind of address that. If you're a new listener, We do this, and we've been doing this for over a decade, and I do it for one simple reason. I actually like it. It breaks up my week. Chris didn't like this at first, but I think now he does. And When I say at first, it was a pain in the hiney when we used to do this live as a radio show out of Greeley and drive every Saturday morning and all this other stuff we had to do. But I enjoy it. And don't take that away from me. I, I like doing this, and I want to do this as long as I can. And is there anything you want to add to that or, or not? It's totally no, up to
2: I it. mean, obviously, there's shows where we do a lot more of that superfluous stuff than other shows. Ooh, Some are pretty... Big word. Oh, yeah. And uh, other shows are more concise. We get through more questions and... Um, For some people who are looking for, you know, just give me as much information in the shortest time possible. That's not what we're trying to do. Obviously, if we're trying to do that, we're failing miserably. (laughs) Um, But there's a ton of people who write in and say, you know, they kind of like it. It lightens things up. They learn more about us and, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's interesting to them. Um, so I'm sorry if that you know doesn't float your boat, and you'd prefer us to do it another way. It's our our show is very unique. That's, that is for sure. It's just kind of like it or hate it. Fly by, by the seat of your time. pants. It is what it is, and hopefully you can extract you know some nuggets of value out of it. Um, but it's not for everybody. My own wife hates the show. She can't she can't listen. It's annoying as heck to her, and she she <laughs> refuses to listen to any of it. So so I get it. It's you know not it's we're not for everybody.
3: No, we're not your cup of tea. And and that's perfectly fine. We get it. And and it's just I want to have fun. That's all I want to do. And uh, we have to give our opinion. We give facts, obviously, but we also give our opinion if we like something or not. And I, I it can't be government. I mean, I don't talk politics on the show. So when he mentioned government, that really made me scratch my head. Uh, it can only be when we kind of say what we think the intent of the government was when they created. Well, a I think rule at times you're, you're
2: broadly critical of the government, but not in a partisan way; just a broad way
3: of. I right. hate politicians. Uh, I freely admit it. Most of them of dunces. <laughs> <tenses. laughs> uh, they get to Washington or to the state house at the state level, and I think they get drunk on power. And, and the more drunk they get, the more stupid they get. So I don't know. It's neither here nor there. It's not nothing you can do about it. All right, we're going to get into social security, excuse me, not social security questions. We're going to get into annuity questions. We're going to wrap up National Annuity Awareness Month, which is the month of June. It is June 30th. So technically, as we record this, it's still National Annuity Awareness Month. And we got a bunch of questions in, Chris, that all covered the same topic. Hmm. Do you have any idea what... Several people have asked about in light of interest rates being so high or relatively high compared to where they've been. Well, it's
2: that last comment about interest rates being high that clues me in because a lot of people have been asking, gee, since interest rates are high, I was maybe initially thinking about waiting to get my annuity income Uh, But should I lock something in now somehow, either start my immediate annuity right away or even consider a deferred annuity where I lock things in even though the income benefit doesn't start until later on?
3: Exactly. So we got several emails. I'm only going to address two. I don't want to address every single one. So if you're not one of the two that I'm about to, to chat about, Uh, Your question was very, very similar, so this will cover your answer. People are writing to us. If you follow our concept, you don't have to believe in the way we like to to, uh, project retirement, or you can just believe some of the things, or like, you don't have to necessarily believe, but you can like some of what we do and hate some of what we do, like the previous email. It didn't like, you know, talking about states and things like that. But we do have a few strong beliefs, and one of them is, Yes, we love income annuities to protect and cover shortages in your minimum dignity floor needs of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care for the rest of your life. You all know this and if you if you're just listening today and this is the first show, go back and start listening to all the shows you can where we walk you through that concept. But even though we believe in covering the shortage, and by shortage, I mean most people have some form of secure income, be it Social Security or pension. Not everyone, but the vast majority of people will have one or both of those. And you might have to buy additional secure income because you don't have enough to cover your food, utilities, trusted housing and health care. So we believe in determining what the shortage is and then covering that shortage with an income annuity, but not until push comes to shove, until the older you fully needs the income. We've gone to great lengths to explain early in retirement while you are deferring all of your secure income, we call this the deferral phase. And it's generally when you're optimizing your social security and waiting for all your social security to be turned on. We don't believe in covering those years with guaranteed lifetime income because it's not for your lifetime, it's till your social security or your pension is turned on. So because there's an end date, we just believe in covering that with a stated dollar amount Using a discounted cash flow and just figuring out how much you need and boom, you get it all set in there. It is from usually age 70 on, which is when your Social Security is at its its peak. You're turning it on at 70. Delaying past 70 makes no sense. So it's usually from 70 on and because you don't know when that ends, we don't come with an expiration uh, printed to our forehead, because you don't know when it ends, we believe in covering that shortage with lifetime secure income. But what we want you to do early in retirement, during the delay period, if you will, is you reserve the dollars that you are expected to need post age 70. And for most people, anecdotally speaking, it'll be between age 78 and 83 where your Social Security and other forms of secure income begin to fail to cover your minimum dignity floor. It just works out like this 80-85% of the time. There's always anomalies on either end of the bell curve where you might need secure income sooner and some people may not need additional secure income ever. Okay, so with with all that kind of in mind, We like people to determine how much you might need in the future, 75, 78, 82, 83, and put those dollars aside. Subtract them out of your see-through portfolio. Remember that concept I have, folks. Position those assets as a long-term delay reserve. Invest them appropriately. Start seeing into your portfolio, breaking it up and leave those dollars and let the older you decide if they want to buy an annuity that's what we believe however we have a lot many engineered do-it-yourself type investors out there and they are picking up on a neat little fact interest rates depending on which ones you look at are at 25 to 40 ish. I I don't think they're quite at 40 year highs anymore, especially since the 10 year has come down quite a bit from where it was last year. But I would say we're, we're looking at 15 to probably 30 year highs in interest rates, depending on which, again, we're on the yield curve you're looking. And they're thinking to themselves, Chris, shouldn't we lock these in now with a deferred income annuity? Not a deferred annuity, a deferred income annuity. In other words, put money into an annuity now and the insurance company will promise us that we will have the amount of money that we tell them we need at whichever age we have figured out we're going to need it. And their rationale is it's locking in, at least in recent history, historically high interest rates. Does that all make sense so far?
2: I think that was a good recap of kind of how we're approaching this. And and the the question that I've heard regularly now, too, because of interest rates being higher and people know that as interest rates with interest rates higher, that causes uh, dollar for dollar when you put money into an income annuity, more income coming back to you because the insurance company takes the money you give them as a premium and invests it at, at interest rates. Uh, and that's what they use to calculate how much they're going to earn to determine how much they're going to pay you back for every single year as their promised annuity payment. So interest rates directly affect that relationship of premium versus the income that comes back. And right now things are you know looking pretty good, particularly compared to the last 10 or 15 years as we exited historically low interest rate, uh, circumstances It it blows my mind what you said before. And I don't want to, I don't want to drag you off course here, but the, you know, the the highest rates in 30 or years or whatever having been alive during the 80s when interest rates were way higher than they are today it makes me feel old (laughs) knowing that because when i heard you say it's you know historically high at least for the past 30 plus years i'm thinking no I way,
3: that's what no I was way it's been
2: that long but yeah no. the 1980s are 40 years ago now 40 some years ago so
3: right yeah. and that's why I didn't want to say 40 because interest yeah. rates were at 18% in 82 yeah, we exactly. had no way near there <laughs> Right. so that's one of the things I want to point yeah. out to the and we got many emails on this I'm only going to address two mm-hmm. yes they're high relatively speaking but they're no way near what they were in the 80s, early 80s, mid 80s, -hmm. no way near. So just because they're at highs that we haven't seen in 20 years, and to a degree I might go out 30, some people wrote 40 in their emails to me and I'm not quite sure it's that high, but I definitely say 15 to 30 year highs, yes. Doesn't mean they can't go higher. Mm And it's one of the reasons I believe in our approach. But they make a good argument and they want our opinion. Both wrote very long emails. They're not pithy like yours truly. So I'm going to skip over a lot of their emails. Here's the first. I am going to get to his hint. Sorry, listener who earlier said they hate the hints. Um, this was an easy one. I, I predict you will get this. I live in the state that is the only state in the United States that has one of the identified Seven Wonders of the World. Hmm.
2: Doesn't that have to be Arizona for Grand Canyon?
3: Arizona for Grand Canyon. His other hint, I live in the state where the saguaro cactus grows. Mm, That would have given
2: it away too.
3: I thought you would have got that one, yeah. yeah. Okay. He says, my question pertains to deferred income annuities or qualified longevity annuity contracts, otherwise known as QLACs, Chris's favorite Mm -hmm. annuity of all time.
2: Which is a... DIA inside of an IRA.
3: A DIA is deferred. Okay, again, we talked about this last week, but real quickly, there is a difference between a DA and a DIA. Right. Every annuity that is not paying out income is a deferred annuity. But not every deferred annuity. No, I can't do it in reverse. I like when you can do it in reverse. You can't do it on that <laughs> one. So skip that. A DIA, a Deferred Income Annuity, is an annuity that has been annuitized. A DA, Deferred Annuity, you can decide when you're going to take income if you ever do. You don't have to, and you can close the annuity and take all your money out. And if it's past the penalty phase no harm no foul you'll pay taxes at that point on the interest you earned inside the annuity and were never taxed on yet but a deferred annuity is is an annuity that you have not annuitized it's still a noun it's not a verb a deferred income annuity is the verb it is an annuity That has been annuitized, even though you haven't began receiving the money yet, you have made an irrevocable decision and told the insurance company, here is some money, I want X amount of dollars on this specific date in the future, and now you, Mr. Insurance Company, are taking all the interest rate risk, not me. So there's a difference between a deferred annuity and a deferred income annuity. It's just like when we spoke last week on living benefits. I said there's guaranteed minimum withdrawal benefits, which are the common ones now, but their predecessor was guaranteed minimum income benefits. And on those annuities, even though you could get your money out, it was annuitized and you are given what is known as an access period. It's very long, but you have essentially annuitized those types of annuities, but you are allowed during the access period to take your money out. Once the access period has been breached, it's annuitized, you don't have your money anymore. Okay, I don't want to get too deep in being very eighth grade level here. Okay, so he is saying, hey, I'm talking about Deferred Income Annuities, or QLACs, which, as Chris rightly pointed out, is a deferred income annuity inside an IRA. They're called QLACs. I'm going to skip everything else and get to the bottom. I realize nobody has a crystal ball, and it's entirely possible for long-term rates to be higher 10 to 20 years from now. But it may also make sense to take a set amount of your money, you know you will need your income to increase by, say, age 75. And let's pretend you are in your early 60s and lock in your interest rate. I would like your thoughts on this strategy. Even if it makes sense knowing what you do about how insurance companies invest let's see, invest your premium contract dollars for this type of in the future annuity payout. I'm not sure what it matters to him, what the insurance company does with it. They're going to buy bonds with the the majority of that money. Um, Thank you in advance uh, for your response. Looking forward to your input. Before we answer this gentleman's question, and I skipped a lot where he laid out how he figured out what he needs and everything. It's a gentleman who knows, or at least has figured out what he's going to need at some point in the future. He well, did indicate- he's,
2: he's predicted. He does not he's know. He's predicting.
3: <laughs> Correct. He's predicting. He's not 100% certain because nobody knows what the future brings. But he did the calculations and he feels strongly at some point during his long-term period. It's, it's Again, we have the delay period and what we call the post-delay period. The post-delay period, and delay being the point where you delay your Social Security. After Social Security, you need additional secure income for the rest of your life. You don't know when that ends, so we like using an annuity, which will pay you no matter how long you live. He's identified at some point what he thinks he's going to need. Just follow his logic, folks. And he's wondering, why not protect myself now for a portion? He did not say all of it. He Mm -hmm. did say... A portion. Here's another gentleman who wrote, I don't think he gives us any hint. So for the person who who doesn't like hints, you're lucky he didn't give us one. And I'm not even going to try to make one up. Okay. He again had a very long email. I'm going to skip through a lot of it. But it was the same question. He explained how he came up with how much he thinks he's going to need. I'll begin here. Several investment advisors seem to not recommend Culex. He was asking specifically about Culex, not necessarily Diaz, Chris. Several investment advisors do not recommend Culex, though I'm unsure if it's because they don't sell them or if they are just opposed to insurance products. The bias from them I often see says they think more flexibility and greater returns by managing investments though investments are not insurance and vice versa. I'm going to pause there. There are some investment advisors out there who just plain old don't like annuities, whether they're QLACs, deferred income annuities, deferred annuities, even MIGA annuities, multi-year guaranteed annuities. You're always going to find them. But there are some, we're kind of a hybrid to his sentence because he said he doesn't know if they have this animosity towards Uh, Income annuities because they don't sell them. He says they often make the argument more flexibility and better investment returns. And I kind of lean in that category. So I'm not going to throw those advisors under the bus. I don't know if they're not recommending annuities because they can't sell them. Maybe they're not recommending annuities because they like people to have flexibility. And when you buy one of these annuities, you do give up that flexibility. Again, we are not against doing this. And we have in the past put clients in QLACs and DIAs. But we don't blanketly do that. Okay, he continues. One registered investment advisor I spoke to has sold a fixed indexed annuity with an income rider. But he did not like QLACs, he said. And this puzzles me, as he viewed the former, the fixed indexed annuity, as being flexible, but the latter, a QLAC, as inflexible. Though in some ways, I see that set it and forget it inflexibility of the QLAC in advantage when I'm in my 80s. Let me pause there, because this kind of ties in what I spoke about Last week, he has an investment advisor, or at least was chatting to one, who said, hey, instead of buying a QLAP, which is an irrevocable decision inside your IRA, why don't you consider this fixed indexed annuity with an income rider, otherwise known as a living benefit? And we talked about this on the recent EDU show where you put money in this fixed indexed annuity and they will guarantee you a certain payout in the future no matter what happens with the market, but you do not get the verb annuitize, you maintain the noun annuity. Now the cynic in me, well not the cynic, the positive view of me says this advisor is truly looking for flexibility, but wants to cover the income need. The cynic in me says they're looking to make a lot more money because of the commissions on fixed indexed annuities, or if he said they're a RIA, a registered investment advisor, they may be using them as part of their AUM, and they get to charge on them now. There's new ones that uh, registered investment advisors can sell and allow them to impose their annual one percent management fee or whatever it may be on the value of that annuity, paying them a lot more money during the deferral phase than they would get by putting you in a QLAC, which would likely commission them once and usually about one or two percent. And then that's it. Nothing else. So I don't know which side of the coin this advisor falls. Either could be the case But I'd like to think that they are truly, again, trying to maintain your flexibility. One thing this listener doesn't put, but I can guarantee you, dollar for dollar, they'll have to put significantly more inside the fixed indexed annuity now to guarantee a certain payout in the future than they would have to put into the QLAC because the fixed indexed annuities with a living benefit. There's no mortality credits. Your money kind of stays isolated on its own, whereas a QLAC is true risk pooling, and you can get mortality credits. Okay, so he continues. Uh, Into my 80s. He did mention that he thought the QLAC would be easier in his 80s. Once the payout phase has begun, whether you're receiving money from a QLAC or a fixed annuity under withdrawal benefit, they're both fairly easy. Once the payout is set, the annuities just keep paying out. So I'm not sure which one would be truly uh, better in the long run. Okay. He says, so what is your take on buying a QLAC now with higher interest rates? And he asks a lot more, but I don't want to get into it. Both of these people were trying to ask the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I chatted with Chris about this before this call. He didn't know the emails. I just said, hey, we got a bunch of these emails in. And I ran by him. I said, really what it comes down to is, do you think you can earn more than the interest rate the insurance company is crediting inside the product.
2: I think more specifically, think about it. You need to earn enough more, not just more, a little more, enough more to overcome you giving up liquidity and flexibility on that, those dollars.
3: Today. Right. And, that's, so, and so. I'm going to let Chris run through this, not me, folks. So if you're sick of hearing my voice, he's going to take over in about two minutes. We chatted and I said, hey, Chris, why don't we do this? Why don't we come up with some numbers and you run them through Canix, a service that we have that you 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 guys can't get, so don't worry about it. But you can find similar to things on immediateannuities.com if you want to try this on your own. I said, why don't we pretend someone is 65 today, going to be 75 in 10 years. They need X amount of dollars. Chris has all these numbers in 10 years. Let's teach people how to figure out close estimate of what the embedded interest rate is inside that annuity. You are never going to be able to get from the insurance company. It would be great if they just disclosed to you, here's the mortality credits, here's the interest we're crediting you, and you could see right off the bat what they're doing. They don't work that way. All of that is proprietary to them. It's their secret. It's their They don't share it with us. They don't share it with you, and they want to keep it from their competitors but you can come close in estimating it and then it's really going to come down to two things folks do you want to carry the interest rate risk because 10 years from now 12 years from now 15 years from now interest rates might be higher or lower than they are today Mm -hmm. do you want to carry that interest rate or do you want the insurance interest rate risk or do you want the insurance company to carry it and Are you okay giving up flexibility? Because if you buy the annuity today, you're going to give the interest rate risk to the insurance company, but you have essentially agreed to being inflexible. You can't get those dollars out if your life changes over the next 8, 10, 12, 15 years, whatever the deferral period is. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if you... Don't mind giving up that flexibility because you have ample dollars covering everything else and those that loss of flexibility doesn't bother you instead what bothers you is the risk that the future you could be back to where we were with near zero interest rate risk excuse me interest rate rates 8 10 12 15 years from now and you want to lock in recently historically high interest rates that we haven't seen over the last 20, 30 years. Walk people through, Chris, on how they could kind of look at this.
2: So what I did just real quickly, ran a single example where someone um, identified the need for income, some, in my example, seven years from now, so in 2030. Um, This is a, a couple, married couple, That is right now 67 and 64 years old. So in seven years, they'll be 74 and 71 years old. And they figured out from their projections that they uh, thought they would need $25,000 a year growing six and a half percent. Why did I pick that? Because I had kind of an example cooking for somebody else already. So it was easy for me to run this quote. So $25,000 a year growing at six and a half percent, meaning each year the income rises. Well, um, the first thing I did is figure out kind of our our standard method, which is, you know, what are they going to need in 2030? Assuming interest rates are about what they are today, because that's an assumption when you use a quote you pull today to use in the future. Uh, But if interest rates are roughly what they are today, what would that 74 and 71 year old couple in 2030 uh, be forced to hand over to the insurance company to get $25,000 a year growing six and a half percent? And the quote came back $742,000. So, in other words, that uh pretend that today they were seventy four and seventy one if they handed over seven hundred and forty two thousand dollars to this insurance company, they would get instead twenty five thousand a year for the rest of their lives as long as either of them are alive. This is a joint and hundred percent survivor uh and that income would grow at six and a half percent per year. just happened to be you know the circumstances for this case that I was uh working on. Now, to the point of the readers or the, the listeners that send in these questions, they're thinking, well, gee, what do I need to set aside today? You know, what? Let's pretend I set aside the money uh, in anticipation of needing this. But then seven years from now, interest rates aren't what they are today. They've actually dropped. And now I need to put in more than the 742 because that's what you'd need to do to still replicate that $25,000 a year payment. If interest rates drop between now and then, uh, that's interest rate risk. And, uh, you know, you might need to put in 770, 780, 800, 825, you know, depending on what interest rates were at the time. And, and they're worried about that. And they want to do what these listeners propose. Let's contract with the insurance company now and enter into a DIA relationship, a deferred income annuity, where we'll hand over money now, but they won't start the income until 2030, like originally we intended. So I pulled a quote for a DIA. Where this couple of today's age, 67 and 64, puts money in and then seven years from now starts receiving 25000 a year, growing at 6.5%. And the insurance company wanted $584,000. So with those two numbers, we can figure out the implied growth rate that we're kind of effectively receiving on our 584000 because Because... Um, it would need to grow to that 742 over that seven year period, which implies about a three and a half percent, uh, interest rate or rate of growth on my $584,000 that I put in. So then the first thing, you know, people do is start asking, well, can I beat that? Uh, probably you probably can beat that. However, let's say you take that approach. It's going to be, The issue where Jim pointed out, you now are taking on the interest rate risk, so you can probably beat it so that your 584 hopefully will grow to more than 742, but that might be good that you beat it and you might still end up behind if interest rates drop enough where even though you beat the 3.5% yourself by waiting to buy the annuity till later, the annuity cost once you got there was higher than anticipated. And even though you might have gotten four, four and a half, five, whatever number you got, which you could also get less than the three and a half. But if you're convinced you could get more than that, you've got to also realize you've taken on the interest rate risk. And that might, you know, take away from your, you know, glorious or your or your luck or whatever it is that got you higher than three and a half percent. So the downside to locking it in, you don't have to the, the upside, clearly, is you let the interest or the interest rate risk go to the insurance company, and they have to worry about it. But if you put the 584 in a DIA right now, that money is locked up. And over the next seven years, if your life changes or, or you suddenly determine you don't need the income anymore, too bad. You've already made that irrevocable decision, essentially. So that's, I guess, the... The best I can do walking through this kind of Dia versus waiting and buying a spia circumstance. It's it's trade offs. You know, it's trade offs really at every decision. Was that my cue? That's it.
3: That's my cue. I, I agree. It's trade offs and you have to decide what makes you sleep better at night. There is no, in my opinion, right or wrong answer to this. If you want to wait Wait. If you want to pass rising or falling interest rate risk onto an insurance company and you sleep better at night, locking it in now, lock it in now. Yeah. Just because we favor mm-hmm. the flexibility and waiting and our thoughts that you might be able to earn more, just that doesn't mean you have to go with it. You do mm-hmm. whatever you prefer. And the gentleman. Oops, go ahead. Yeah, and
2: it's not an all or nothing thing either. I think uh you know, one definite risk is you've mis um, misprojected your twenty five thousand dollar need, and maybe you don't need that much. If you need more, then you just, you know, have to call upon other resources and buy more when it comes time. But one fear is you over annuitized, right? You got too much. So if that's a fear but you're convinced, oh, you know, even if my estimates are off, I know I'm going to need at least 15000 And even if I get there and I don't need, you know, I'm never I'm never going to regret getting $15,000 a year for the rest of our lives. So maybe let's lock in that amount and then we'll top it up when we get closer. You could do kind of a half and half or, a, you know, a partial. Uh, there's not an all or nothing uh, decision to be made here. You can kind of do a blend and and just kind of try to address what you would regret the most and try to avoid that thing. And that's probably the best you can do when trying to predict the future.
3: Yeah, I agree. You don't have to do it all or nothing. So again, both listeners, I know you asked a lot more and wrote a lot more, um, but it's really a decision you need to make. We can't really say you should or you shouldn't uh, do it. it. The higher interest rates get, the more compelling it gets. But also, just because we're at these rates doesn't mean the only other direction they can go is down over the next 8, 10, 12, 15, 18 years, whatever your uh, post-delay period is before you're going to need the income. It could go even higher. Remember where they were in the 80s. So just keep that in mind as well. And that's one of the reasons we tend to favor flexibility. Uh, We love annuities and we do feel people should buy them. It's just up to you on when you do it. Yeah. All right. I think that's all we can get to. Is there anything else yeah, you want to
2: That'll have to wrap for this Q&A show. So, I don't and that's
3: that, it for annuities. That's it Not for annuities clop, clop, for a while.
2: So if you want to send in your own question for a future Q&A show, just uh, email those into to Jim directly. That would be uh, jim at jimhelps.com is his email address. That's jimhelps.com. Put in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast and uh you know it'll be up for consideration for making it onto the show and if we don't answer your specific question hopefully we answer something substantially similar we do appreciate everybody listening and sending in their questions because that's what makes the show work and uh we've got a skedaddle so i'll sign off and uh, just say next week we'll be back with you with a brand new show
1: you have listened to jim on the radio read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on itunes But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier and Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit JimHelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's Jim H E L P S dot com. Or call 970 530 0556
0: is offered through Jim Solnier & Associates LLC, a registered investment advisor.